This podcast delivered by Australia Post. Whatever you're sending, they make it easy to pay and print your shipping labels from anywhere. And if you're in a metro area, they can come and pick up your parcels with My Post Business. Find out more and go to ozpost.com.au slash podcast. Australia Post. They put everything behind your business. Now, time for the show. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm here as always with David Scott. Fantastic to be back. And our guest this week, back on the show for the second time, and it's fortuitous uh, timing as he's not only an expert on currencies and the Australian global economy, but he's also a Canadian. Elias Haddad, Senior Currency Strategist at the Commonwealth Bank. Elias, welcome back. Good day. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Uh, it's great to have you here. Um, there's lots to talk about. Central banking is great again. We're going to talk about the Bank of Canada the global recovery, a bit about the Fed, and we'll talk about the Eurozone probably, and of course the outlook for Australia. Um, and if we get time, we'll look quickly at cryptocurrencies, especially Ethereum, which has been on what can only be described as a completely bonkers rally lately, um, and uh, a pretty significant crash uh, in recent weeks. So back to the pointy stuff. Uh, the Bank of Canada raised interest rates uh, this week, joining an increasing group of central banks around the world that are signaling that maybe, just maybe, uh, we're taking some tentative steps back towards what might approximate uh, the normalization of monetary policy uh, in advanced economies. Elias, let's start with Canada. Yeah. Rates up to 0.75%. That's right. So it was widely expected that the Bank of Canada would raise uh, interest rates overnight. What was not expected is the fairly constructive outlook that the Bank of Canada set out, essentially suggesting that more rate hikes might be in the pipeline. A lot of uh, market participants were expecting ahead of the Bank of Canada meeting that the Bank of Canada would essentially emphasize that uh, a rate hike uh, would essentially just be a removal of the insurance rate cut that they've implemented back in 2015 following the uh, massive slump in crude oil prices. But uh, the Bank of Canada essentially suggested by upgrading their GDP projections and also by bringing forward the timing as to when they expect Canada's economy to get back to full potential – that there's potentially more rate hikes in the pipeline. And, between uh, now and the end of the between, year? Between, yeah, over the next 12 months, that's right. And uh, another important point to, to, to bear in mind is that the Bank of Canada is actually not concerned about benign and muted inflation in Canada. Uh, inflation in Canada is actually close to the uh, lower end of the Bank of Canada's 1% to 3% target band. But the Bank of Canada essentially thinks that the low inflation backdrop in Canada is only transitory. Yeah, they, they think they're going to, um, it's going to be back to around uh, the midpoint by midway through next year. Is that- that's right. And also an, an, an interesting point is that they highlighted that because inflation is measured with a lag, reacting only to the latest inflation data would be like driving a car by looking in the rearview mirror. So they're being preemptive with their inflation outlook, meaning that there is certainly scope at this stage for more rate hikes from the Bank of Canada despite a benign inflation backdrop. So bottom line, in terms of our base case scenario, we expect the Bank of Canada to lift uh, interest rates again in October by 25 basis points. And we're looking for a total, again, of 50 basis points rate hike in 2018. Uh, so this will be fairly good for the Canadian dollar. In fact, we expect the Canadian dollar to continue to appreciate against both the U.S. Uh, and Australian dollars. 
So potentially expect more Canadian tourists uh, over the next 12 months yeah. here in Australia. <laughs> They'll be more than welcome. Love, love, love Canadians. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, Dave, fascinating time, isn't it? Um, because Canada is definitely not alone uh, in this outlook and starting to talk about um, brighter days ahead. They um, feel that the time is uh, right to start um, lifting rates again. Well, I think uh, everyone can agree that the uh, the global economy is now stronger than what it was last year, and it uh, seems to be in a, a trajectory where it's just holding at the moment. You look at the other uh, PMI surveys that uh, they're around the world. Uh, in uh, in the United States, we had a rebound. Uh, European, uh, all the PMIs there are very very strong, if not at record highs, very close to it. Uh, so it all points to a global backdrop, which is very strong, and that's starting to be mirrored in the language we're seeing. Obviously, the Bank of Canada turned hawkish about a month or so ago, laying the, uh, the platform for the, uh, the hike we saw overnight. And then, of course, uh, we've also heard rumblings from the uh, European Central Bank and the Bank of England as well, um, giving the market some kind of clue that, uh, that get ready for either a tapering of asset purchases by the ECB or for the uh, Bank of England a rate hike. Um, Mario Draghi's uh, speech in Sintra uh, at the end of June, um, was, I saw one strategist describe it uh, in a note as a, what he believes will be seen as a watershed moment in monetary policy history. Um, the key uh, phrase from, from Draghi was that all the signs now point to a strengthening and broadening recovery in the euro area. Deflationary forces have been replaced by reflationary ones. That's pretty significant. This is that's whatever right. it takes, guy, you know. Yeah, um, that's right. He knows the power of his words. Um, how do you yeah. see um, this playing out for the ECB? I think just before we get to the ECB here is that this big global theme that uh, David was talking about, and that's a major theme now driving the currency market. It's this shifting regime in central bank policies. Specifically, you got at this stage, the Fed is probably close or in, uh, the Fed's rate hiking cycle is probably in its, in its mature phase. Uh, maybe another 50 basis points or rate hike is, uh, uh, will, will probably pan out from the Fed. But because of muted inflation in, in the U.S., aggressive, an aggressive rate hike cycle at this junction seems to be unlikely. And also, uh, Yellen's comment overnight were, were quite revealing. Uh, she essentially said that the Fed funds rate would not have to rise that much further to get to a neutral policy stance. So clearly, we're getting to a mature phase when it comes to the Fed, ra Fed uh, rate hiking cycle. In contrast, this is precisely what Dave and, and yourself were, were pointing out, is that you've got other central banks that are moving towards a less accommodative monetary policy stance. Right, the ECB, as you correctly said, is, is, is starting to, to lay the groundwork for a reduction in its monthly asset purchase program. Uh, the Bank of England as well is laying the ground, the groundwork for potentially lifting interest rates as soon as November, if not earlier in August, and removing this uh, pre or post Brexit uh, 25 basis points insurance rate cut they've implemented back in 2016. And as we mentioned earlier, I mean, the Bank of Canada has already led the ball here with a, a rate hike. Uh, Yesterday. So clearly we're seeing this shift now, uh, and this, this shift is moving against the U.S. dollar. And that's one of the big reasons uh, why we expect further downside in the U.S. dollar, because of this shifting regime in central bank moving against the U.S. dollar. Do you think there's a risk, though, with these, uh, these comments that have obviously gone and helped the other uh, British pound and that helped uh, the euro? 
uh, obviously the Canadian dollar as well, tightening financial conditions. So not just interest rates, but also by the fact that the currency is appreciating as well. So it's tightening conditions at a time when it's still the recovery is, is looking okay, mm. but uh, it's still not what you would say for like fully fledged. It's not uh, self sustaining. Do you reckon there's a risk potentially that all of this chatter right now, trying to go and prepare markets for this normalization, could actually have a detrimental impact on, on those uh, economies? We're not at this stage yet because we're not moving to a restrictive monetary policy stance uh, by by slowly removing. Uh, the, the, the excess stimulus on the monetary front that is in the market right now, it's not going to be enough to cause a, a systemic uh, or systemic r- a collapse in, in financial market conditions because we are still in a very accommodative monetary policy stance despite the removal of, uh, of uh, easy monetary policy. And I think what's been interesting, what struck me um, uh, over the last week is has been that this sort of whiff of perhaps some talk of or this sense that there may be some central bank coordination in the air, that all this talk started coming sort of all together after we'd seen a pretty muted, quiet period in global financial markets. Um, Everything, you know, we talked about these record low levels of um, equity market volatility um, in the United States. Um, Stocks just edging higher, you know, by less than half of a percent or some, on some days 0.05% you get a gain in the, in the Dow. Um, so it was quiet um, and you kind of get this sense that, right, um, everything's calm and there's room and, and clear air for central bankers to start talking about this new agenda um, that uh, maybe it's time to um, to look at and, and start talking about it, see how the markets react. Um, there hasn't been um, a taper much. tantrum. There hasn't been you know a significant spike in volatility. Uh, it's certainly time, as you say. I like to use this this expression. It's an expression that's used, you know, quite uh, popularly in the financial lingo. I mean, to remove the monetary punch bowl. It's about time to 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 to, to, to reduce it or at least remove it uh, because I mean you've got. Uh, it, Financial, financial, financial markets are, are just on fire right now. Um, there's still, uh, and and the there's still a lot of I mean, accommodative monetary policy is still going to be sufficient at this stage to to support financial market condition and and avoid uh, some kind of uh, you know, detrimental financial turbulence. We've got to remember too that the, the Fed has provided a, a poster child and is the poster child for the central banks around the world. And they first embarked the first G7 central bank to start hiking rates in this cycle. And they did it very gradually. They made sure the markets were fully priced for a, for a hike. When the hikes often came through, you've seen that markets have actually rallied. There's been some enthusiasm. So I think that's given confidence to other central banks as well that, you know, okay, if we go and yeah. prepare the market to say, okay, we're going to start going pulling the punch ball away – that there's not going to be this huge tantrum. And uh, obviously, we've, we're seeing there's been a bit of a rupture in the bond market, and that's something that's definitely going to have to be watched, particularly with the Fed, uh, with reducing their balance sheet, which is likely to start happening later this year. But uh, the, all the general theme is if you show that gradual approach that you prepare the market, that there's not going to be those uh, these huge sell-offs that we saw Initially, after when uh, the Fed decided that they were going to start tapering back in 2013, I think it was, or was it 2015, um, when, uh, when Ben Bernanke uh, first alluded to it, then uh, the markets cratered uh, that day in May. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, and uh, uh, bond deals have been – so it have been very interesting uh, movement in, in global um, bond deals, benchmark um, U.S. 
tens and Australian uh, 10-year bonds as well. Um, so there was a big sell-off in bonds, so yields spiked um, over through that Trump reflation trade. But then they came back in, they fell, and it looked like that had all unwound. Um, but now we're back up to, on the Australian 10-year bond, something like 2.75%, um, which is around about the level that it got to through the Trump reflation trade. And it's actually got there pretty quickly. So we're in this position now where um, bonds are starting to get to a point where, you know, some strategists say that these are key levels that we're now uh, approaching with the um, U.S. Treasuries around um, 2.3% or so. Um, so um, that's certainly going to be, David, as you say, um, something to watch very carefully. Um, Elias, what, what do you think um, uh, is, is happening, particularly in the, the, when, you see, when we're seeing the sell-off in bonds? What do, you, what do you think is happening there? I mean, it's clear. It's this, again, it's this shift in, in, uh, in, in divergence in monetary policy stance. Uh, now, you know, with inflation still fairly low around the world, even in the U.S., uh, it's going to be difficult for U.S. Treasury yields to edge significantly higher. Uh, unless uh, the Trump administration is uh, is able to implement their aggressive fiscal stimulus platform, uh, the U.S. 10-year Treasury yields will have a hard time um, sustaining a significant upleg uh, because U.S. inflation is relatively muted. Now, in the Eurozone uh, and ger ger German bond yields, uh, French bond yields, they've all also uh, gone up. Uh, primarily because of a bit more of a, a constructive monetary policy stance from uh, from uh, the ECB. Same thing with the Bank of England. But again, the, you know, inflation in the eurozone is is fairly benign, fairly muted. Say, and and this essentially means that whenever they begin to remove this monetary policy accommodation, the ECB, they will do this in a very gradual way. It will not be in a way that will be uh, too restrictive. Um, to uh, that, that would ultimately push eurozone bond yields much higher. Um, it's it's certainly very interesting when you look at some of the fundamentals, David. Uh, job creation very strong in the United States. Another big print um, for the June uh, jobs report. There, two hundred twenty-two thousand jobs. Um, Doing your best, uh, Richie Benno impersonation there. Two hundred twenty-two. Um, so very good. Um, uh, sort of um, four and a half percent unemployment, um, but obviously. You know, if we're looking at this pace of job creation, um, you would imagine that this, um, that that unemployment rate slowly um, continue to fall. Um, job ads in the UK um, have been surging uh, in recent weeks. Um, there's some possibility that you know part of that is people. Um, leaving particular jobs that are going to be reshored to um, to, to Europe um, uh, in the Brexit process, um, but nonetheless, a lot of job ads uh, in in the um, uh, in the UK, um, and the Chinese economy, um, you know, um, for what it's worth, is humming along uh, pretty nicely, isn't it? It is humming along pretty nicely. Even everyone saw the uh, trade data for June that was released today; it was uh, very strong and. Good sign for uh, for Chinese demand and also for uh, for global demand because obviously you know they make a lot of stuff that the rest of the world wants. Uh, so you're both getting our uh, double digit uh, annual growth rates there for imports and exports. Um, as I said earlier in the podcast, it's uh, the things are looking much better in the uh, in the economy at the moment. Um, the key the key risk is that uh, there's a, a central policy misstep at uh, at some point. 
um, that uh, perhaps they decide to go in tight in conditions too quickly or uh, a rogue comment from uh, from a major central banker, and I'm talking about like a Janet Yellen or a Mario Draghi here or a corroder of the Bank of Japan, which could potentially go in and upset the apple carpet. Everything for the time being looks like it's pretty good. So uh, whilst uh, whilst things are looking pretty good and, uh, and markets are accepting that, uh, that, that conditions are tightening very gradually, like, uh, I can understand why markets are rallying like they're doing. And with Australia being such a trade-exposed nation, let's turn to that next and uh, have a chat about what it means for, for us down here. You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. So, to Australia, uh, we've just been talking about the Chinese economy going uh, pretty well. They're our biggest trading partner. Um, our biggest uh, export iron ore has had a little has picked itself off the mat, Dave. Um, in recent weeks, yeah, it's back in the bull market. Yeah, up uh, what twenty twenty two percent off the lows. I think. Uh, you can go and uh, peel yourself away from the daily gyrations, which I can't unfortunately do. Um, I think it's about twenty percent from the lows we saw in uh, in mid June. So solid rebound, but still down uh, more than thirty percent from its highs early in the year. Yeah, um, and so the, the, the rebalancing of um, uh, of China's economy seems to be going okay. Um, uh, uh, Elias, what's your uh, take at the moment on? Um, let's start with the Australian dollar. Um, obviously, commodities uh, feed into into that a little bit. Yeah. Um, currently sitting around, I think, about seventy seven cents today. Um, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's about right. That's right. I mean, we're fairly constructive on the Australian dollar for. Uh, uh, various reasons. Number one, you've got the current account deficit in Australia is narrowing, and that's underpinning a firmer fundamental value for the Australian dollar. Uh, the the risk is the RBA, or the, the risk is interest rate expectations for Australia potentially adjust a little bit higher. Uh, the market is not pricing in any rate hikes for Australia, at least for the rest of this year, and there's only potentially a 40 or 30 percent chance of a, a 25 basis point rate hike from the RBA price 10 for 2018. So the I whole think, of 2018. Yeah, for for at least until June 2018. So there's certainly scope here for interest rate expectation to adjust a bit higher for, for Australia in favor of the Australian dollar, especially if we look at what other central banks have been doing, right? The Bank of Canada, the ECB, Bank of England. Perhaps we'll see uh, the, the RBA uh, turning a bit more, uh, not I wouldn't say hawkish, but potentially uh, uh, m- indicating that uh, uh, the uh, you know, m- low monetary policy may 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 not be lasting forever. Let's put it that way. David, um, it's certainly an interesting time for the RBA, isn't it? It is, and I hope that they don't turn hawkish anytime soon. The um, foolish be honest, uh, at this point in time. A lot of the places we're talking about where uh, there's normalization of monetary policy going on, uh, excluding the Eurozone, which is obviously a different kettle of fish, and we're only talking about reducing asset purchases there, not uh, not, not actually tightening conditions per se. Um, but Australia's labour market has got a lot of slack. We've got very weak inflationary pressures at the moment. Economic growth is at the uh, growing at the lowest rate since the GFC. Now, if any central bank thinks that that's the right conditions to start talking about uh, hiking interest rates and getting a, an Aussie dollar to 80 cents and above, uh, it'll be ludicrous. So I hope that they don't do that. 
Look, they played uh, they played a very nice uh, hand uh, their July monetary policy statement. Very neutral, and I, the way I read it was actually is probably slightly uh, more dovish than what they were in June, which surprised a lot of people. And a lot of people were expecting that they were going to uh, sort of talk up the uh, the strength in the labour market conditions and whatnot. That didn't arrive. They still describe them as being mixed. And they dropped their reference to uh, growth being a little bit above 3% over the next couple of years. And uh, that's quite telling and, and potentially lays the ground, the foundation that they might actually go and uh, lower their forecasts for, uh, for GDP in their next statement of monetary policy. So um, it's, it's at the moment, uh, no, I liked what they did there. Um, as other uh, commentators alluded to at the time, if they had turned hawkish, uh, you would have seen the Australian dollar. It's already 70, 70 cents without anything that they've done. Uh, if if they went talkish, geez, you'll be talking about a, an Aussie that will be close to 80 now, in my opinion. No, I think you're absolutely right, David. I mean, that's not our base case scenario, and you've clearly uh, set up the case for why the, the RBA will remain on hold. I don't disagree. All I'm saying is that the risks, considering where money market pricing is, is that they adjust a little bit higher. Oh, definitely. Um, no. One, that, that's, yeah. that, 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 that was, that, that was the, the simple argument, but you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the Australia's economy is, uh, doesn't justify uh, a higher interest rate, or at least a more hawkish stance from the RBA at this stage, especially considering that inflation is not even expected to get back to the RBA's uh, 2 to 3% target for at least another year, if not more. Uh, so we're, we're certainly not at this stage, but all I'm saying is that the risks – uh, for an upward adjustment to rate expectations in Australia are, uh, are, uh, are to the upside. Yeah, clearly, clearly because obviously you're seeing that uh, the data has been fairly strong recently as well and the markets have gone, financial markets have gone and reduced the other uh, probability of a, of a rate cut happening uh, in the second half of this year to like next to nothing. And look, about a 30 to 40% chance of a 25 basis point hike being pricing next year. Out of all the ec- economists' forecasts that you hear from day to day, to be honest, the financial markets, you know, those overnight index swaps pricing gives you a fairly good indication of what the market is. And the RBA will be very aware that what that is saying at the moment will dictate what they also do as well. If, uh, if, if they see something that's out of whack and anomaly, they will go and take action to go and correct that, either by turning slightly more hawkish or slightly more dovish. So they're doing a, doing a fairly good job at the moment. But the balance of risk, as you say, no, they're probably to the hawkish side. Governor Lowe has uh, made it very clear that uh, you know a reluctance to go and cut rates further in fear of just stoking the uh, the housing market. That's anyway. right. Yeah. So and look, not to be Pollyanna about it, but look, as you say, David, there are all sorts of reasons for the RBA to manage this extremely carefully because, well, primarily the slack in in, in the labour market and this extremely low uh, inflation outlook. I, I just can't see signs of any inflationary pressures anywhere at the moment, um, but. Um, we, there are a couple of things. One is business conditions um, being reported now at a post-GFC high. Um, we saw uh, this month. There is a big challenge still, uh, Elias, isn't there, between a gap between business conditions, what businesses are saying they're, they're seeing, um, compared to how consumers and, um, and household consumption, the outlook there. How do you see the gap between those two? What do you think well, is going the, on I mean, there? the leading indicator of business confidence and business condition, they're all pointing to a potential recovery in, uh, in business investment in Australia. Uh, the 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 mining uh, the the, you know, the the mining business investment or the the unwinding and the, and the drag from mining business investment is also essentially behind us, so uh, b- business investment is bound to pick up and bound to be a, a tailwind to Australia's economic activity as well as pri- uh, public uh, public uh, infrastructure investment. 
uh, going to be a fairly significant tailwind for Australia's economy going forward. And this is what we're seeing from uh, CBA's uh, Purchasing Managers Index pointing to a pickup or at least a – The new a, CBA Purchasing Manage, right. Managers Index. I, I wanted to ask you about this, but yeah, sorry, go ahead. And so it's, it's pointing to a bit of a reacceleration in Australian economic activity for at least 2017 and 2018. Um, but certainly not enough to justify a rate hike at this stage. And, and that's why we, uh, in our base case scenario for the RBA is for the interest rates to remain at 1.5% 1 1 throughout 2017 mm. and well into uh, 2018. David, uh, can I just turn back to the property market quickly? Because we did have um, this very clear easing off in house price growth, in the rate of house price growth uh, throughout May. But in one data series. It, yes, in, in, in one data series. But it uh, appears to have made a pretty stonking comeback in, in Sydney and Melbourne in, in recent weeks, hasn't it? It has. You know, we're talking about the CoreLogic uh, Index and um, anyone who's uh, been following anything I've been writing recently and even on the podcast, we've been discussing that uh, it seems to be some seasonal, seasonality. I'll try that again. Seasonality uh, padding in the, uh, the data, uh, which is uh, constantly seen in May where – Prices across the capital cities going fall and then reaccelerate sharply uh, in June and July. And we're seeing exactly the same thing again. But uh, in other house price measures, I know SQM research has got uh, some stonking gains going on in Melbourne, and that was throughout that May period when the CoreLogic data was saying it was weak. Um, and putting two and two together, it's, uh, you're looking at very, very fast, well, still fast house price appreciation, and both in the cities where population growth has been the uh, – the, the highest. So there's, uh, there's clearly a link between the two. So while things look like they're starting to go and slow down, it, you know, you've got to go and put into perspective what that slowdown is. It's going from like, you no know, ridiculously high to just high. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, from, from levels of so, sort of, I think, 18, 19% at some points mm. annualized uh, down to 10, 11. Yeah, well, and, that, and that's ten percent a year is yeah. still pretty high. Eh? Yeah, that's that's where the uh, the auction clearance rates at the moment. Uh, UBS has done some uh, excellent research, and they've done an analysis of uh, you know, where national clearance rates are being compared to national house price growth. And high sixty percent sort of region we're seeing at the moment is what you'd expect to see with house prices of ten percent per annum growth. Mm. Um, Elias, can I just swing back to Canada because um, uh, Canada in some cities has had a really spectacular um, uh, housing boom as well, hasn't it? And yeah. I think in some ways that price growth has astonishingly been stronger than Sydney's. That's right, Vancouver and Toronto in per uh, particularly. Uh, that's why both of these cities uh, implemented recently some uh, uh, macroprudential rules to try and curtail uh, runaway house price growth. So macroprudential, uh, well, that applies specifically to the location? To, to the city, that's right, mm -hmm. yeah. So it was implemented by the provincial government. Um, so taxes for unoccupied investment housing, for instance, uh, to try and, and really slow down this uh, this red hot housing market in those city, particularly in the condo the condominium market in uh, in, the, in those city, has just uh, uh, it's bubbly. Mm. Um, so you know, these the, and these measures have been successful. Uh, because you look at uh, the, the 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 growth of house prices in Vancouver and Toronto, and they've slowed significantly lately, uh, after growing at double-digit rates uh, in the past few months. Um, the problem is you've got other cities that haven't implemented these uh, more restrictive uh, housing rules uh, to to curtail house price growth. So what's happening is you have all these foreign buyers uh, that have been 
essentially um, priced out of uh, Vancouver and Toronto, moving to other cities and inflating, like Montreal, for instance, my hometown, uh, and and inflating prices in this in in these cities because they haven't implemented these more restrictive. Uh, measures to curtail the, the growth rate in house prices. It sometimes is amazing how quickly um, policy adjustments can take hold and, and you see an impact from them. Uh, with, with, the, uh, with the Canadian example too, the, so a lot of it was done, as you said, to go and uh, you know, restrict uh, foreign buying in particular. That was what the, uh, you know, a lot of the, um, the vacant uh, properties uh, tax was, was aimed at, was so people, you know, land banking, they'd go and buy a place and then go and get their money Primarily out of China, not necessarily China, but a lot of in China, and then uh, I know just go and keep it out of the other uh, government's hands and whatnot. Um, but it's interesting, like how similar, because well, we're just started going to do the same things. But the rates in Canada are, are significantly higher than what they are in uh, in Australia already. For like, the, the foreign foreign stamp duty uh, taxes and uh, and and the levies and everything else. So it's one of those things. It's, it's so similar how the world is. I know. Canada, a world away from Australia, has got the same problems and trying the same things as what uh, what other places are doing as well. Well, particularly the the you know the ultra wealthy um, uh, foreign buyers, mainly from China, um, who are so wealthy that you know you add in an extra level of tax onto a property, and it's it's kind of meaningless to them. You know, if they if they're looking to buy a property for. 10, 20, 30 million, um, you know, slapping a five or 10% tax or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, if they're, if they've got that kind of money to throw around in the first place, they're not going to be too trouble. Correct. And a, lo- a lot of the time when you see those, those trophy purchases, as they've uh, become known, it's, uh, it's not actually to go and live there. It's to go and get your money out of China, uh, and protect it from unscrupulous, uh, you know, sources that could go and potentially take it off them in, uh, you know, blink of an eye. So yeah. That's I mean, a lot of what's going on. You know, not to, um, not to get uh, in any way conspiratorial about it or that, about uh, Chinese capital controls, but I did see a really interesting story um, from our colleagues at Business Insider in the UK last week where they talked about um, two venture funds um, worth £1.5 billion uh, pounds, um, that were primarily supposed to be um, uh, have uh, backers from China. Um, that were supposed to get up and running and start investing in startups uh, in the UK and in Europe um, that haven't materialized. So they were announced, but nobody's rocked up with the money. So, and the suggestion is that that um, they've been pulled back from 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 letting that uh, that capital um, out of the country yeah, to, and that's, to invest that, overseas. That was, that was implemented at the start of this year to go and specifically, you know, stop uh, you know, or, or curtail uh, a lot of the. Um, the money that was flooding out to go and buy property. You know, that was one of the things that the uh, the PBOC uh, implemented um, and restricted you know, to go and actually purchase property. It's uh, one of the things they went and pulled back on. So it's not all that surprising. Yeah, very interesting. Um, okay, I just want to quickly um, ask you, Elias, um, you do get to talk your own book, the um, CBA, IHS uh, market PMIs. Um, so PMI surveys are done countries around the world by market. Um, and uh, it's, um, you know, pretty interesting and probably, um, you know, long overdue that um, Australia has got its own sort of global standard um, uh, uh, purchasing managers index. We do have a current one, which is the um, performance of manufacturing index and mm-hmm. performance of services index, um, but this is now from the the benchmark global provider of um, market. Uh, yeah, yeah of, it's um, compiled by market. Uh, 
Uh, listen, it's got oh, it's got a, a year worth of data so far, and uh, I think the, the the bottom line from from and what is suggested by the Commonwealth Bank's uh, purchasing managers index, both manufacturing and services, is that uh, it's pointing to further modest uh, growth in Australia economic activity. Uh, but it will be interesting to monitor this uh, this index uh, month to month going forward and see if it does indeed have uh, uh, influence in the currency market so far. I mean, the, the currency market will continue to ignore this data because it hasn't um, – it doesn't have a lot of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, but hopefully going forward we'll see this indicator – uh, being watched quite closely by currency traders and portfolio managers. So. Yeah. Ignore it at your peril. No, <laughs> have a look at the PMIs uh, that you've seen from around the world for, uh, for services and, uh, and manufacturing in the likes of Europe and the US. Well, a year ago, we were starting to talk about um, global PMI levels being up to just, oh, you know, 50.5, that kind of level, um, looking rather healthy at a global level um, so when you aggregate it all up so right. um and and now here we are um you know maybe eight months after that and um uh, central banks are talking about you know trying to um, as you say t- um, take away the punch bowl correct it's one of those things where you know these pmi surveys get criticized in some quarters because they're a sentiment indicator not uh, not indicating what's actually happening in the ground uh, on the ground should i say um but as we're seeing, they have a much quicker latency. So they, they give you data which is happening you know, within weeks, whereas a lot of this industrial data you see um, or you know, GDP data will go and give you, you know, a snapshot of what things were three months ago, five months ago in Australia's case with, uh, with some of the GDP figures. So um, when, they're, uh, when they're starting to go and tick up and you see a clear trend, obviously you know, I think people should go and start taking, uh, taking them seriously. And that's precisely just uh, to, to add to David's point from earlier. I mean, the, the global PMI, as you, you correctly stated, also have been improving and are now well, well above the 50 threshold consistent with further expansion. So it's, the global PMIs right now are pointing to a further synchronized global economic recovery uh, at a time when, yes, uh, you know, monetary policy is probably going to be less accommodative but nonetheless still accommodative. So still in the sweet spot for financial markets. Yeah, like have a look at uh, you know, European stocks. You know, the European PMI started to go and improve, and you saw huge inflows going into European stocks. Now, Asia in particular had quite a lousy period you know, midway through last year and uh, even early into this year. Now they're starting to go and turn around as well. And then, ta-da, you know, we're seeing huge inflows into Asian markets as well. So you know, they're providing – Hong Kong, a, we were looking at Hong Kong up 4% this week. Yeah, you know, Hong Kong's at a two-year high in the, the Hang Seng. Uh, Sensex in India, all-time highs. Kospi in South Korea, all-time highs. Um, so it just gives you an example that you know, it's a it's a – useful indicator to go and see where things are improving and where capital flows are likely to go. Yeah, meanwhile, the ASX ambling along at 5,700, you know. Um, okay, um, look, uh, it's certainly going to – we'll watch those PMIs um, uh, carefully over the coming months. And as you say, Elias, it's uh, going to be really interesting to see how that um, the correlation between um, those levels and uh, what we're seeing in the official data that will come uh, a little bit later. Um, so um, uh, good to see. And also, as we noted, um, some pretty encouraging uh, uh, noises uh, from the global economy for um, for Australia. Okay, I just want to quickly look at um, cryptocurrency. Um, I, I just have a note here about Ethereum, right? So Ethereum is is you know the world's second most popular uh, cryptocurrency after uh, Bitcoin. Um, now the market is nowhere near as big as Bitcoin, and Ethereum is nowhere near as valuable. 
Um, but are you sure that that could have changed in this case in this podcast? <laughs> yeah, you, you may have rallied it two thousand percent. Yeah, that's right. Because get a load of this. Um, so it's the second largest cryptocurrency by market cap, and at the end of twenty fifteen, it was at ninety five US cents. Um, at the end of twenty sixteen, it was at eight dollars twenty one, for a gain of seven hundred and sixty four percent over the year. Um, then it was it hit. Uh, 400 US dollars by June 13th. Um, and that's a gain of 5,000% in less than six months. Um, and then over the 18 month period, uh, it multiplied 421 times. So you get a 42,000% gain um, in that 18 month period. And in the four weeks since then, it has crashed 52% um, to 193 US dollars. Um, I'm sorry for laughing and, you know, particularly hope that there's no, no, there's no people out there who poured big chunks of their retirement savings into, uh, into Ethereum, but David, wild stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it's, um, we're going to start doing some uh, some live uh, Facebook videos on markets, and I think I might go and do one uh, just specifically for Bitcoin or Ethereum one day, and um, I'll have to go and get my best uh, world wrestling entertainment uh, voice on to go and describe because it's just chaotic. There's no other way to describe those markets. It's uh, a culinary uh, and a, a horse race, you know, and down the outside comes Ethereum, oh, no, and Bitcoin's taking the lead. Um, it's it's crazy. It's um, Look... As for uh, as for the t- the cryptocurrency craze, um, all I see is that a lot of early adopters have become extremely wealthy, and that's why you have a natural vested interest in people who are trying to go and talk it up until it goes and hits mainstream and is accepted by mainstream, which I still have serious doubts that's going to go and occur. Um, I still see it as being pretty useless. We um, we had a note um, this week. Sorry, um, Elias, but we had a no- we saw a note this week um, about uh, I think it was Morgan Stanley talking about how uh, in the United States. Um, the acceptance of Bitcoin by retailers is virtually zero, but also falling now. So to your point, Dave, you know, you need to be able to transact with this stuff. Um, and if you can't, um, well, you know, it's very difficult to justify the kind of values that are that are assigned to it at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know anything really about cryptocurrencies, to be <laughs> honest. But uh, I think that the way I look at it is that it's it's a computer program, Right that controls the money supply of these currencies. By definition, a computer program can be hacked, correct? So I don't see how you can build trust in the value of these currencies when there's always this possibility that you could hack the, you could hack the program. So, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Again, I, you know, I was probably one of the early doubters of the internet, so don't, you know, don't, don't <laughs> take what I, what I say with too much. With, with a, please take what I say with a grain of salt, but uh, from yeah, I I, I have uh, at this stage very little confidence in the spread of uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, to, at least to replace fiat money. Yeah, it's what what it has to overcome, and this is where my grievance is with it, is that given people bought it when it was very very uh, no, well compared to now cheap, and a lot of people, as I said, have become very wealthy now. You're talking about you know, a minute percentage of people who have, are in that boat, and they've got to go and try and convince those now, people who have not adopted it early, that there's some sort of worth to it, and why they should justify making those people for who are 
paper millionaires or you know have made an incredible amount of cash now why they, why they should be paying them for what something was that they bought you know for 95 cents a few years ago um, and until they can go in and explain that as a reason why that people should be doing it, I think it's going to struggle to get mainstream traction. I think there, um, there's a good equivalent uh, argument that I remember from a few years ago when Bitcoin was around at first. Um, and the question was, well, why is a dollar worth a dollar? You know, why is the, the greenback uh, worth a dollar and why is it the reserve cur- currency? And the answer to that is, you know, and th- the argument goes, well, because the US military says so. So, <laughs> promissory <laughs> note, that's We what have it a is. tank division that says this is worth a dollar. You, <laughs> do you, would you like to continue this conversation? Um, so look, uh, you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. David Scott has been on the show. Thanks very much for all your input, Dave. It's been a great walk through the uh, global economy. Pleasure to be here and a great chat. And our guest uh, back on the show for the second time. Uh, and uh, terrific to have you on again, Elias Haddad, uh, Senior Currency Strategist at the Commonwealth Bank. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Paul. Uh, you can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're on iTunes where you can subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. The show is produced by Rick Salter. I'm Paul Colgan, and we'll catch you next time. podcast was delivered by Australia Post. If you've ever received a branded package, you'll know it's a small detail that makes a big first impression. Now with Australia Post, you can design your own personalised packaging. For more info, go to auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.